Toxoplasm Advent Calendar Day 10, Ultraviolet. Now, to be clear, I'm talking about the 1998 Channel 4 TV series about vampires, starring a very young pre-Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack Davenport. Actually, it's, it's only five years before he appeared in Pirates of the Caribbean. It's just after he was in This Life, as Miles Stewart, um, and before he was in Coupling. Now, one of the reasons I chose Ultraviolet, I mean, I've been... I've been wanting to talk about the series for some time. Um, there's just not a great deal to talk about because we know what the vampire genre is. But, of course, prompted by discussing Susanna Harker, um, I, this led to this. Um, I wonder where Idris Elba is going to take us. But, yeah, anyway, Susanna Harker, Idris Elba, um, and Jack Davenport, and Philip Quast, who I think is mostly a theatre actor. In this case, he was playing um, the Cardinal in ultraviolet so here's the setup uh and uh, you know tell me if you heard this one before a group of off the books um vampire hunters sponsored by the vatican track down vampires um neutralize them and take their ashes and store them in a secret vault um jack davenport's character finds out about them because his best mate disappears one night just before his wedding and then reappears as a vampire and it's him being neutralized which exposes our primary character to the shadowy world of vatican vampire hunters and they have all the kit uh they have carbon-based bullets and they have grenades that fire out um wooden splinters and they have guns which have video cameras attached because vampires not only can they not be seen in mirrors, they also cannot use, uh, they, they can't be heard over the telephone or seen in video recordings. So this is very handy. If you've got a recording screen in front of you, you can see who the vampire is and who, and who the humans are. Uh, and that's that was kind of a really neat thing. And it added a great deal of tension to the whole thing when you say when you say that you have characters who are conflicted about what they're doing and not sure if they shoot somebody that they're actually going to harm an innocent person. So they have to be sure. But then it takes time to actually look at your video screen and realise you're faced with a vampire and neutralise it with your gun. And that was a lot of the dilemma of all of this. Um... It was pretty edgy at the time. And the, there was one plot which was um, about uh, child sexual exploitation. Um, I'm not sure if this was before or after the brass-eyed paedophilia thing. Um, but it was like, mm, would you actually do that now? Um, and it, it turned out, and this isn't really a spoiler, it turned out that, of course, the, the vampire was the child not the not the uh, paedophile there was a particularly gut-wrenching moment where jack davenport comes face to face with the child and aims his gun at it realizes it's a vampire and still can't shoot because it's a it's a child and uh, despite his result telling him to you know, you've got to shoot it you've got to shoot it there was another really memorable one where idris elba's character was was locked in a warehouse with three coffins about to open. So the way the vampires get around is they have these um, these coffins sealed with a time lock so they can never be exposed to uh, the sun's rays. 
And that was one of the fun things because it was taking the tropes of being a vampire and then saying, well, let's take that as face value. Let's say that that is actual fact about vampires. What's the scientific answer to that? And that's something that sort of has been repeated in other vampire media. Um, Blade features uh, an ultraviolet gun to, um, to, to harm vampires, that sort of thing. But this was British, very low-key, kind of, and very serious, and felt uh, felt like a proper drama. The other fun thing about it is that um, uh, Mike's uh, best friend, I think he was called Mike, yeah. Mike's best friend, um, the, guy, the, the guy who stood up his uh, future wife to become a vampire, ended up playing the primary character in True Blood, so obviously that's what he does. Um, it is a very different character. Now, um, one of the things that I think is quite exceptional about it, and you have to watch it to appreciate, is the implied menace of vampires and the idea that they are incredibly powerful. And if you come face to face, there's no way you can defeat it and you'll be in terrible trouble. So the Vatican or whoever else is the um, the vampire hunters they have to use every advantage they've got. So, you know, daylight ambushes and uh, and all sorts of things to make sure that they have the edge. They have to be very uncompromising. There's one bit where, um, a, uh, where, where a vampire wants to bite his mortal wife because she, uh, who has a, um, uh, a dangerous condition. And, um, and they choose to bag the vampire and then the last scene I think you see is Susanna Harker's doctor doing CPR desperately on the woman who doesn't survive. I mean, it's, it's pretty bleak. And it's also interesting because it's about vampires being organised as part of the establishment. Well, that's nothing new. But it's also about vampires organising an apocalypse not just so they can take over the world. They, they already run the show. They are already walking undetected amongst humans. They're incredibly powerful. No one can match them physically. But what they're seeing now is mankind's ability to destroy itself. And that's why they're taking action. So they're proposing some sort of nuclear winter that will block out the sun in which they can operate for the entire day and therefore get a lot of other things done. So they're acting in a very pragmatic way. And we know that they are um, they are capable of emotion. They still have ties to their past life. So the interesting thing for me, watching this as a sort of vampire player, and this was like post-vampire era, really, because, you know, vampire had pretty much become a parody of itself by the mid-90s, I think. But you watch this and you, you say, actually, there's an incredible tension here, um a really interesting story to be told. And it's also a return to vampires as not unsympathetic characters, but certainly the opponents who will give no quarter if they're threatened, and the establishment that you need to deal with. They become, again, monstrous. If they want to, they can snuff you out. They are godlike, and that is the frightening thing that you have people who know the truth, humans who know the truth, and they know that vampires walk among them, and they're absolutely terrified because they know that physically they can do nothing, so they have to be 
secretive uh, all the time. They have to monitor for betrayal. They have to be careful no one's being bitten because being bitten means you're more suggestible to uh, vampiric hypnosis. Yeah, really tense, excellent series in my view. Now, the other interesting thing that happened around the time when I first saw it, in 1998, I just started my Department V game. Department V was basically the Sweeney as Vampire Hunters in the World of Darkness. A World of Darkness that I'd modified, and I'd very much changed the sort of scientific outlook uh, and viewpoint. So there was a lot of stuff about exposure. And I think some of that was actually... Um, me channeling the series but you know, hand on heart I started it before the series aired but there, one of the things I did in Department V was um, the idea that the more exposure you got to the weird and the supernatural the more you could see it so the problem is that um, you, know, you know how werewolves have I can't remember if it's called hysteria or something else the, the reason that humans ignore werewolves is because it, the sight of them drives, them drives humans into a blind panic and the reason you don't see vampires is because of the masquerade. So I use this concept of exposure as a sort of a biological contagion. And they're vampires being piloted by Atlanteans. What I mean by that is that there's a thing in Helena Blavatsky. I think it's Helena Blavatsky, I'm not sure. I first read it in Jocelyn Godwin's book, Arctos, um, about the Atlantean colonies. And there's this idea that the Atlantean colonies go through a number of physical stages. One was ethereal bodies, then they had giant bodies, a.k.a. Nephilim. And then they became um, hermaphrodites, and then they separated into two sexes. Uh, but I always had this idea about Atlantean colonies being tied to 12 or 13 houses. In my case, it was for the Zodiac. And they're actually, the colony itself is the colony that occupies the body. It's a whole load of self-aware, independent cells that form a hive mind within the body that becomes the person. So it, it's no different from the sort of the idea that you are overtaken by a demon. But in, in this case, it was like violent microbes piloting humans and creating mayhem as a result. And that was the idea. Now, one last thing about ultraviolet. You had a delay between being able to identify the vampire and firing. Now, imagine what that would be like in a role-playing game. Let's say that uh, in a game, you have an opportunity to shoot something you think is a vampire. What is the trade-off between being sure it's a vampire and getting the first shot in? And uh, I think you could mechanise that. I think you could have emotional fallout as a result. I think that even if you pulled the trigger and you were then vindicated and said, yes, it's definitely a vampire. If you weren't sure at the time, would that prey on your conscience? And how would that then affect the character going forward? Would they gain stress? Would they gain um, some kind of mental preoccupation? Anyway, I've uh, gone on for long enough. So I'm just going to open the next bit of the advent calendar. Let's have a look. Okay. Oh, it's a mirror. Very useful. All right. See you in the next one. Bye-bye. Fictoplasm Podcast. Words by Ralph Lovegrove. Music by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at fictoplasm.net. Fictoplasm.